We're jumping back into Exodus. We take, have taken a, a five-week break looking at uh, what does it mean to be together as a family, uh, together for the gospel. Um, now we're jumping back into Exodus chapter 17, and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good morning. Let's read together, follow along. All the congregations of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Messiah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hand, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called, called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will, will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, I pray this morning that you will open our ears and open our hearts to receive your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant word. And Lord, would it so transform us and renew our minds that we will see you more fully and glorify you in our full lives. And Lord, ultimately, may we see you giving yourself as the best provision that we can ever receive. 
So use your word this morning, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Exodus is not an easy book to interpret. Let me just put it out there. It's kind of like being asked that question in, in a presbytery exam. How would you use uh, preach from First and Second Kings? First and Second Kings would be similar. It's not a, an easy book to interpret and then apply in a sermon for the people of God. In many respects, the New Testament epistles would be a far easier uh, far easier to use because of the flow of the argument that is often used and the message is clearly identified in those epistles uh, but narrative stories they're difficult and they're often difficult for a couple different reasons first it's it's mostly narrative it's the book is a collection of the most important stories connected to Israel's deliverance from Egypt and how they became God's people while the stories are great for listening, they're great bedtime stories for their kids, and they can retell, remember when this happened, remember when that happened. Sometimes, while it's great for listening, it's hard to sort out what details are the most important and which aspects are central to the message. Secondly, Exodus is a challenge because as an interpreter, as a pastor, we must con uh, connect the content of the story to the bigger picture of the Bible, the gospel. That's my primary responsibility, is to connect this story with the greater story, the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes the, this, uh, the book of Exodus so glorious, but it also makes it extremely challenging. There's a danger for you to as we interpret the, the Bible, especially books like this, to overanalyze something or to over-allegorize something. In other words, the interpreter, uh, interpreter could, could really force implications and interpretations and applications or connections that are completely forced. Where it's not staying true to the story. But there's also a danger that in not connecting Exodus with the gospel, that you would miss the real point of the whole book and much of the beauty of the gospel. So in preparing for this series, one of the things that I did is I read a number of different books on the, the Old Testament and how to preach from the Old Testament, and how to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. They're helpful, but each and every week I find myself in my preparation having a sense of intimidation or fear that I'm going to overread something into the text that is really not there. I feel the weight of the message of this book, and I, I feel a burden not to make the text say something that it's really not saying. So today's text is one of those rare, uh, rare sections of Exodus when the New Testament, a New Testament author, actually helps us make a connection thank god as the apostle paul looks back on exodus chapter 17 he clearly identifies an underlying message brent i think you can throw it up for me i think i put it up there yes this is from first corinthians chapter 10 for i do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud 
and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And it goes on to say, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So we approach this text with a a real sense of anticipation that that there is something that is directly connected here in Exodus 17 that is connected to the New Testament. So we're going to look at these two accounts with one common theme. The provision of water from the rock and the victory of the Amalekite over the Amalekites both demonstrate that God's greatest provision is himself. The water from the rock and the victory over the Amalekites, God's greatest provision is himself. And I'm not sure that we get that. In your day-to-day walk this week, can you honestly say, man, in everything, in all the gifts that I'm getting, and the beautiful weather that we've been experiencing, the, the financial resources that I've been blessed with, with a job, the children that I have, the, the spouse that I may have, the friendships that I have, the church family that I have, the, the car, the home, the bed, all those things. Ultimately, though, God, the greatest gift, the greatest provision that I can have is you. You are the greatest gift. God's greatest provision for us today is himself. Since chapter 13, we have seen the ways that God has provided for his people. A few weeks ago, we saw the provision through manna, but today we see this provision of God's personal interaction, personal interaction with his people. But there are some surprising things for Israel to learn about God's real presence. The people of Israel are like us. Like all sinful human beings, they learn important lessons slowly. Slowly, and often the hard way. True for you, yes? Some of the greatest lessons you've had to learn multiple times. Slowly, again, and again, and you're, you find yourself in that situation going, are you serious? I'm here again? Did I not learn the first time from that explosion of a relationship that I should do things differently? Lord, help me remember. The same is true with Israel. The same is true for us. And despite seeing God's provision at Marah and the daily supply of manna, the people fail to trust God when their needs seem to be unmet again. Chapter 17 tells us that the people continued their journey into the wilderness and they came to a place of Rephidim. And the name Rephidim means resting place. And they discovered that at this resting place, there is absolutely no water. And it's not that there, it was bitter water. It's that there was absolutely no water at all. And as a result of the lack of the water, the people of Israel once again fall into this pattern. 
of grumbling. This is the fourth time that Israel fails to trust in the Lord when facing this, this gap that's in their life. There seems to be a gap, and so they, they fail to really trust Him with their whole life. And once again, what do they do? They lash out against God's servant, blaming Him for their troubles. In verses 2 and 3, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And the people thirst there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Listen to this emotional response. To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is a familiar response for Israel. But there are also some new aspects that we've got to be able to see. First, the text says that the people quarreled with Moses. Their grumbling, which means that they were talking against, has escalated to a new level of animosity and opposition. They were really at him, even to the point that he was fearing being stoned, right? They were really going after him. Second, the people moved from complaining to demanding demanding their internal rebellion was starting to bubble to the surface third moses cautions the people that they are testing the lord in other words he makes a connection between their grumbling and their their quarreling to their relationship with god moses connects the dots between their gap their presupposed gap and their god notice what they accuse moses of doing to them Plain out neglect. Neglect. Give us water to drink. There, there's absolute, not just neglect, but negligence. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? They question even the wisdom of leaving, of leaving Egypt. And then they, they accuse them of murder. Did you hear that? Did you bring us out here to, to kill us? By not having water to drink? And then there's a sense of abandonment. Is the Lord not among us? This is a summary of their complaint and the most serious charge. They doubted God's presence. All it took was a lack of water. And the people of God, despite everything that they had seen, doubted whether God was really in their midst. And this is really, was really a way of doubting whether God really had made Israel his firstborn son. Israel's heart was hard and the circumstances of life were just kind of unpeeling their hearts and revealing a problem with God. It's showing their hearts. Psalm 97 gives us a commentary on God's perspective. Psalm 97 Verses 7 and 9. For he is our, our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as, as on the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they have seen my work. What happened in Exodus 17 will become a very important example of the problem of opposing God. 
Grumbling is one thing. Quarreling with God is another. Both are sinful. But this quarrel with God was an escalation of their rebellion. What happens next is really unbelievable. And if you're just reading it through like a, a children's storybook Bible, you will really miss what God is doing here. God intended to teach his people a lesson. So he addresses their quarreling by ultimately putting himself on trial. He's going to address their, their rebellion, their heart issue, by putting himself on trial. The people had made some really serious accusations, and God will show them how wrong they are and how gracious he is through a single moment at a rocket horeb. Moses appealed to God in verse 4 because he sensed the people were angry enough to kill him, and things were getting out of control. And so God had a solution. You see that in verse 5. God said, pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of the people of, of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. These were not just mere instructions that we can quickly flit over. God was setting the stage. He was setting the stage for a dramatic illustration that was designed to teach Israel and those who would read about this story a lesson. Moses was to gather the elders, take the staff, which was a symbol of divine authority, and they were to inform, uh, create a processional line in front of the people. The ethos of that moment was designed to capture that an important event was about to happen. And it was serious. Verse 6 tells us what was going to happen. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Don't miss what God said here. I will stand before you. The God of the universe, the great I am, was willing to endure the scorn and the accusations of his people. They were putting him on trial. It was outrageous. It was dangerous. What's more, he was going to receive punishment at their hands because he instructed Moses to do what? to strike the rock on which God was even standing. The rod, of God, the rod of God was what Moses used to facilitate judgment on Egypt, right? And now the rod was going to be the means of judgment on God. The divine plan here was for the people to unfairly accuse God of treating them unfairly and then God would be struck then water would be provided for them I hope you can start seeing a gospel picture in the judgment God would give life to those who were completely undeserving God's plan was to provide life for his people by putting himself in the place of judgment. 
Let me say that again. God's plan was to provide life for his people by putting himself in the place of judgment. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. This moment at Meribah, which means quarreling, and Masa, which means testing, became a defining moment in the history of Israel. God merged the sinfulness of his people, the unfair judgment, and their provision one glorious event. So what we see here is it's no wonder that Paul uh, looks back into the Old Testament and he sees a clear picture of redemption found in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that he said, and all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The parallels from this moment and are all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me give you a few more examples. And Brent, you can throw these up. The first is from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten. You hear that? He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He is the rock that we strike. But that rock also provides peace. Listen to John 4. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen to Revelation 22. The bride and the Spirit say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So the model that, of God standing in the place of judgment, embracing undeserved punishment to provide for his people, and using water as a metaphor is something very familiar if you understand the gospel. God stands in our place. He embraces the punishment for his people. And we have this beautiful metaphor, picture of water. And we see it in the gospel. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to earth as a human being and dwelt among us. He was present among us. Jesus lived the perfect life, and yet he was rejected. Completely rejected, unfairly judged, and bore unjust punishment. He absorbed the wrath of God so that those who would receive him could satisfy their spiritual thirst. John 6 says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
This is the beauty of the gospel. That God mercifully offers himself to take on punishment, and in that punishment provides life-giving forgiveness. Jesus is the rock that we struck. Jesus is that rock. Just think of the implications for a moment. First, we get an early indication of the way of redemption. We see that God is, is willing to take upon himself unfair treatment in order to provide for his people. Anyone who understands this will find him or herself in such love and worship. God stood in my place and received the punishment that I so deserved. What a Savior! I need to respond, out of lo- not out of guilt, I respond out of love and worship and adoration, out of gratitude for what he has done for me. That should have been me. I should have been struck. But he stood in my place. We see the fundamental upside-down logic of the Christian faith, right? Love, self-sacrifice, consideration of others, even when treated unfairly, and the divine purpose of suffering are what makes Christianity so potentially radical and transformative. It's upside down. All the other religions of the world do not look like this kind of faith. Christianity is radically upside down. And the beautiful thing, another implication, is the grace of humility is so evident here. God takes a position which is infinitely, infinitely below what he deserves infinitely below what he deserves and yet he embraces it in order that he may provide for the people that he loves is it any wonder that paul says in philippians chapter 2 have this mind in you which is yours in christ jesus have this mind Be like this as you are being transformed into the image of God. Have this mind among yourselves. Have the same kind of humility, much like what has been given to you. You be like that. Jesus is the rock with which we that we struck, and Jesus is our example we should follow. But God is also the banner that we should trust. For the last two chapters, you could see Israel was battling internally with issues of fear and trust. Will God truly provide for us? God has used the Red Sea, provision of sweet water, the sending of daily bread, and the supply of water out of a rock. God has attempted to show them that He will provide for them. He is the best gift for them. The God who delivers is the God who provides. He doesn't just save you and send you on your merry way. I'm going to save you and provide for you. 
However, Israel was about to learn that she is in extremely hostile territory. Satan hates what God loves. And if slavery under an oppressive, genocidal regime did not destroy the people of God, then perhaps an attack from another angle will. The Israelites are going to face their first military battle. Keep in mind that prior to this time, God was the one who did all the fighting for them. All the fighting. It was God who brought the plagues. It was God who killed the firstborn. It was God who parted the sea. To this point, the the nation has been told to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Don't even lift up a hand. Watch. Their role was to watch, wait, and trust. Just sit back, watch, wait, and trust. And see God's hand. Sometimes this is all that the Lord calls us to do. Paul, I just want you to sit back. I want you to watch. I want you to see me play this out. You don't even have to raise one finger. You don't have to make one phone call. Watch me work this all out. This is amazing. Watch me do it. And your faith is going to be bolstered. You're going to be strengthened. There are times where we, all we have to do is just wait. But that's hard for you to do, right? If you're anything like me, you hate waiting. I'm going to take the bull by the horns and I'm going to put an end to this. And I'm going to be in control of this. Because ultimately, I'm God. Or a little God. But one of my favorite passages in regards to this is from Lamentations 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait quietly. Not clamoring. Not freaking out. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good. It's it's right and it's helpful to wait on the Lord. At the same time, not everything about the Christian life involves waiting. Hear that. There is a real battle that we do face. There are practical things that we must do. There is a war to be waged. So how do the people of God wage war? Are fighting and waiting mutually exclusive terms? We learn in chapter 17, verse 8, that the people of Amalek came out to attack Israel. This is a group of distant relatives to Israel. Since descended from Esau, if you go back to Genesis, they descended from Esau, and they were in continual conflict between Israel. There was a continual conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. Constant. It's like a family reunion where there's that one group that you're going, they just drive me up the wall. There's always this fighting going on. From what we can gather from history, the Amalekites were just a nomadic people who, who domesticated the camel, They lived partly by attacking other nations and plundering their wealth. And this particular attack is the first of many military conflicts between Israel and Amalekites. And what's more, it is likely that it 
Israel was not adequately prepared for this kind of a conflict. They weren't ready for it. Even if the Israelites had some military uh, training, the number of battle-ready men was not large. The Amalekites were probably seizing an opportunity of weakness and attack when they were most vulnerable. But in the midst of this, God had an important lesson for his people. This is the first time that we hear the name Joshua in the book of Exodus. Anybody know what Joshua means? The Lord is salvation. And he will become a very important figure in Israel's history as a man who God appoints to lead the nation after Moses' death. Moses called Joshua to find enough men. Just find enough men for battle. And he was going to take the staff of God. Moses was going to take the staff of God and go on top of a hill. And Moses was going to set himself in a position to seek God's help. Here in verses 10 and 11, it states that Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought fought with Amalek. And while Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of a hill, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Prayer is not specifically mentioned here. It seems rather obvious to me that what happened was meant to make a connection between what happened on the ground and what happened on the hill. The uplifted Hands of Moses equaled victory on the ground. And when his hands lowered, the battle took a turn for the worse. Moses was unable in his old age to sustain that position by himself. In a beautiful picture of solidarity and community, Aaron and Hur held up his hands with him. Have you ever heard that there's a certain verse when two or three are gathered referring to prayer maybe there's a connection here they help Moses by holding his hand steady until the going down of the Aaron and her provided the help that Moses needed in his intercessory role of this hilltop prayer was an important victory and the one that Israel needed to mark in their memory. This important lesson was enough to memorialize. Listen to Exodus uh, 17, 13, and 16. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. This, This altar is called, The Lord is My Banner. Saying, The hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Part of what needed to be remembered here was God's promise to judge the Amalekites. God promised to do. 
God was promising that those who raise their hand against God's people are in effect entering into a conflict with God himself. You attack my people, you are ultimately, ultimately attacking me. And that is what a hand upon the throne is likely means. If a person raised his hand against the plan of God, then God will deal with him definitively. In other words, God's plans will not be thwarted. Period. The other thing that takes place in this text is the construction of an altar to mark an important victory. This is a typical commemoration for the events in the life of Israel. They, you'll see when they cross the Jordan for the first time, what do they do? They pick up large stones and they set them on the other side and they call it an, an Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer. What does an Ebenezer do? Every time you walk past it, you remember, oh, this is the place that God provided by stopping the water so that we can pass through on dry ground. That's our Ebenezer. Tell your story to your children. And here's another story. On this mountain, we are going to build an altar. The Lord is my banner. And what are we going to do from generation to generation? I'm going to tell that child. I'm going to tell that child. I'm going to tell that child. And they're going to tell their children, their children, about this kind of saving God who provides for us. The Hebrew word and the use of it in the ancient Near East had the idea of a signal pole. The word was used for a pole or signal that was used to rally people or troops to a particular point. It was a pole that was, used, that was raised high above the ground in order to send a signal. Gather here. Look at what's being done here. Look what was accomplished. The word was even used in Isaiah 11 in order to refer to the coming Messiah. That day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus is our banner. He is our banner. And in the immediate context, Moses was simply making the point that while Israel was fighting the battle on the ground, it was the Lord who was their rallying cry. They were fighting the battle, but the battle really belonged to the Lord. And what's more, their victory was dependent upon his help. There was a direct connection between God's assistance and their success. The conflict with the Amalekites was part of the instruction of Israel regarding God's ability to be their provider. He has proven his ability to provide a path through the Red Sea. Sweet water, manna from heaven, a rock that provides water. A rock. But now the people will learn that even their battles, even though they have sharp swords and spears, and maybe they even have these little things where they swing around rocks and nail people, even in those times, their battles are dependent upon the Lord. There are moments when they are called to trust on Him and wait. 
But there are other moments where they are called to trust on him while fighting. They need God's help in everything. And so do you. I love the scene in my mind where Moses is lifting up his hands and being supported by Aaron and, and her. This, this, is, this teachable moment has a number of parallels in the New Testament that we need to consider. First, the followers of Jesus are in a real battle, in a real spiritual world. There is a real battle going on, folks. And I don't think you realize it. We go about our, our days with, quite freely and without open eyes and receptive hearts. But there is a real battle going on in a real spiritual world. Paul tells us that we wrestle with more than just flesh and blood. There's a spiritual force work behind the scenes. And the enemy is still opposing the people of God. There is a real battle. Dependency through prayer is still the main way we fight. That is why month after month after month after month, the elders implore you to join us in prayer. There's a battle to be fought. Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 18 say, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, praying all times in the Spirit. Prayer is a conduit, a conduit of God's power and a reminder that we cannot fight this battle on our own. Prayer is not just a mealtime thing that you do. Prayer is a conduit of God's power and a reminder, Lord, we are helpless without you. We need you. We are imploring you, Lord. Would you act for the salvation of this person? Would you act on behalf of my workplace? Would you act on behalf of my marriage, this relationship, this family situation? God, would you act? Because we are dependent on you. The battle, also, we have got to remember, number two, the battle is not to be fought alone. God has supplied the Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God has given us the Spirit who indwells within us and intercedes for us. We have Jesus who is our great high priest and through whom we can boldly appeal for his mercy and his grace. So we've got the spirit who is dwelling within us and we have Jesus who is appealing for us as our high priest and we have each other. There's something powerful about agreeing together in prayer. Last time we met, it was a powerful opportunity for prayer. Last um, second Tuesday prayer with the elders. Hey guys, agreeing together in prayer. Matthew 18. Again I say to you, if two 
of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. So there is a beautiful sense in the Bible that no matter what battle we are facing, there are divinely given means of grace and help. The struggles in which we are engaged may be difficult and absolutely scary, but they, we are not left on our own. Jesus is, Jesus is the rock we struck. Jesus is the banner that we trust. He provides mercy by absorbing judgment. And He pours out power when we face struggles in our life. And the beauty of this passage, hear this, is that whether the issue is battles within or battles without, God's greatest provision is himself. And I want you to be convinced of that. That God's greatest provision is himself. As you prepare for communion, I want you to examine yourselves. 1 Corinthians demands that that you examine yourself. Can you say, truly, Lord, you are the greatest gift. You are the greatest provision for me. If not, confess it. It's not a surprise to him. In any way. Confess, Lord, This week I have relied more on this. These gifts were far sweeter than salvation found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus will say, come. Come. Because the work of sanctification is, I have empowered you by my spirit. I've enabled you in such a way to more and more put to death those things in your life. And I've given you the spirit to enable you more and more to live unto life. Jesus, God's greatest provision is himself. Let's pray.